For fuck's sake, dock your shit. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast where we help you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Maddie Stratton, and I have a great guest with me today. But first, a word from our sponsors. Chef is a community of professionals practicing DevOps every day. We are making, proving, learning, and shaping the future. We are known for welcoming, encouraging, and liberating others to do the same. We do not talk about change. We do change. Join the community and learn about our solutions at chef.io. This episode is brought to you by Datadog, a monitoring tool that helps bridge the gap between operations and dev teams. Datadog brings together system metrics, changes, alerts, and events from over 120 common infrastructure tools, such as Chef, Docker, and AWS, so that dev and ops teams share their key data and alerts in a single place and collaborate on issues in real time. Datadog is available for a free 14-day trial at arresteddevops.com slash datadog. So I'm joined today by VM, a.k.a. Vicky Brasur, the Vice President of the Open Source Initiative. And we're going to be talking about contributing to open source software, how you can do it better, why it's important, and all sorts of things free and open source. The show notes for this episode can be found at arrestdevops.com slash F-O-S-S. So, Vicky, before we kind of get into this, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, hi, Maddie. Hi, listeners. Um, it's great to be here. Um, so, myself and my background, so I am an open source policy and strategy freelancer, and I also am the VP of the OSI, the Open Source Initiative. So uh, what the freelancing is, it's not, you know, I see a lot of listings for open source developer, open source strategy, open source this, uh, well, don't see listings for open source strategy, unfortunately. Um, And those are primarily development, and I'm more on the business side. So I come in and I help companies understand open, free and open source software and how to use it, contribute to it, release it, and comply with the licenses. So how to do that properly, but how to do it in a way that's good for their bottom line and the community at the same time. And it's that's one of the things that I see we don't do a lot of in free and open source software or in business is pay attention to both the business perspective and the community perspective and balance them appropriately. And that's what I help companies do. Fantastic. Uh, So one thing I wanted to talk about for starters, uh, some exciting news, um, and this will probably play a little bit into the topic. So you have a book coming out, right? Uh, Forge Your Future with Open Source. Holy shit, OMG, BBQ, WTF. Yes, I have a book. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, um, for those of you who have considered writing a book, um, I would first say don't do it, but if you do it, uh, do it with pragmatic publishers, which is my publisher for my book, because they were so amazing. Um, and so supportive throughout the entire process. Writing a book is hard. Um, so this book is all about how to contribute to free and open source software projects. It is as far as we can tell the only book ever to cover this, um, and there are some possible social reasons for that, I'm sure, that I won't get into right now, but it finally exists. Um, you can book, get it right now at Pragmatic Publishers. Um, it is available in an early release beta, and the hard copies will be available in mid-October, I believe. We're going to be doing signings at All Things Open, so we better have hard copies by then. 
Yeah, or else you'll be, I don't know, signing people's hands or, you know. Yeah, T-shirts or, you know, I'll yeah. go all rock star on them. It'll be kind of a little bit of a different thing. Yeah. So when we think about the business, and actually there's kind of a topic, and I, I don't want to kind of catch you by surprise, but there's there's a, speaking of open source and the business of open source, um, Redis had a pretty big announcement uh, in the last what, 24, 48 hours? I don't know if you've read about that, but they're, they're changing I, their licensing. Yes. I, I have read about that. I have already blogged about that. I have written on Hacker News about that. I have wasted most of my time fielding <laughs> questions today about that. Wasted is probably the wrong question, uh, the wrong yeah. way to phrase it, frankly. But, um, yeah, it has kind of consumed my life today. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, what happened is that Reddit uh, posted – I know it wasn't really a blog post or news or anything like that, but they posted a page explaining that they were going to take certain components, which were not listed or named, um, and they were going to relicense them under the Apache license with something called the Commons Clause attached. And what the Commons Clause does is it prevents anybody from making any sort of money whatsoever from those components, whatever they may be. Now, to be clear, this is not core Redis. This, so Redis itself, apparently, according to the lead developer, is now and always will be under the BSD3 license. So don't freak out about Redis being closed source now. But um, a lot of the pieces apparently around Redis are being closed source. Uh, although the Commons Clause implies that it is open source, it's not because all of the freedoms of open source software and free software, they all ensure you can do whatever you want with the software, including make money. So I have some thoughts and feels on this. Do you have questions? So yeah, well, we will definitely put your, so your blog post, uh, we'll put that in the show notes for sure. So people can follow up on that. Um, but yeah, there's definitely been uh, the, the Twitters have been, been a fire about, about that for sure. When when we kind of think about the um, so you talked about kind of the business the business side of open source um, and the business development kind of side what are what are some of the lessons that that people can take away about this some of the things that that don't get thought about that you alluded to before well for starters people seem to think that open source is a business model and that's foolish. Open source is not now and never has been a business model. Open core can be a business model, but open source itself is concerned with the freedoms of the use and modification and distribution of software. That's what it's concerned with. Business models are a completely different thing. Open source is one of the many tools you can use within your business to potentially make money. But you still got to do the really hard work of figuring out how to do that. So simply opening up your core software and saying, okay, now people are going to pay me for it. I mean, that's stupid. That's not going to work. And if you look at the list of companies that have been open core over the years, um, there are very few of them that you can point at and say, yes, open core has been successful. And the only few you can point at and say, quote, unquote, success, they were all exits by acquisition. They were acquire hires because you could not obviously be 
acquiring the technology, it's already uh, it's already freely available. So open core doesn't appear to work. Um, my friend John Mark, who is currently at edX, he has a really great series on this on I believe Linux.com from 2015. And if you would like me to dig that up from the show for the show notes, mm-hmm. I can certainly do that. But um, he just lays it all out and says, "Come on, guys, this is not how you do business." How you do software and how you do business, they can work hand in hand, but they're not the same thing. Yeah. So, uh, like you said, it's strange that like, you have to actually think about how to run a business and actually think about revenue and not just magically build it and people will just give you money, strangely enough. Yeah. Uh, weird, isn't that? Well, yeah. well, the strangest thing is that people do just give you money. They're called VCs. And they just give you money, several million dollars. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, your open core business can chug along quite fine as you burn through that that runway. But then you just have to go back and get another funding round because you will find that you're having a difficult time just you know selling your support or selling your extra add-ons or what have you. And so I think that this is something that we need to give a closer inspection. Not that it can't work. Because people definitely can make money from free and open source software. I do it. This is how I pay my rent. But there are, I think, uh, on a case-by-case basis, people need to reevaluate with this, whether this is the appropriate business strategy for them. What are so we talked about you know open core being something that that rarely works. Um, what are maybe some some success stories of being able to let like you said, it's not a business model. But being able to leverage open source software as part of a business model, what are uh, some examples you've seen of people doing it successfully, organizations doing that successfully? Well, open source, I mean, it's not a business model. So you can't just release all of your stuff and expect people to pay unless you've got a really good reason why they would do that. Uh, which apparently is one of the problems Redis may have been having. It's really hard to tell why they decided to make this move. And so I'm not going to pretend I know. Um, <laughs> So, um, but the thing is, free and open source software, depending upon the study you look at, it is in anywhere from 80 some to 98% of the software that is currently developed in uh, proprietary companies. They rely upon free and open source software a lot. Uh, So using free and open source software is an amazing way to bootstrap innovation and to get your company off the ground where we seem to be falling short is on contributing back to free and open source software. And Nadia Eggball had a really great uh, study that came out. It was sponsored by the Ford foundation. I think that was in 2014, 2015, not too long ago um, where she researched, um, the the crumbling infrastructure of software development and how it is based upon all of these free and open source software projects that are not getting the support they need to be successful. Um, so Nadia, uh, she was at GitHub. I forget where she has moved to now. She's doing really great work on the research side now. So thank you, Nadia. Um, so uh, that's that's a really interesting study. And a lot of people, that set off a warning bells for them. And they realize that, holy shit, I am basing my entire business on software that is just hanging by a thread because there is one dude who is doing this in his free time. 
And that's actually what happened with Heartbleed and OpenSSL. There was a very tiny team that was not receiving the support it required, and they weren't able to cover all their bases. And that caused a lot of problems for a lot of companies, the entire internet, frankly. So that is something, uh, once Nadia's study came out, it was an alarm bell across the entire industry. And everybody started talking about the open source sustainability problem, which because a lot of these people come from Silicon Valley, they interpreted it as let's throw money at it. <laughs> so that's what we're currently looking at is this bevy of sustainability initiatives for free and open source software. And I do believe that a lot that most, um, of these core contributors do need some sort of remuneration for their, for their efforts. I think I strongly believe in paying people for the work that they do, but what they need more than anything, I believe, and what we are neglecting a lot of is help. They need more con core contributors to help them and they need themselves to learn how to allow other people to help them. So it's a very complex people issue. It's not actually a business issue. And we're all of the approaches I've seen so far are coming at it from a business and a technological perspective rather than the people perspective. And I think we can do better. And that's what I hope my book will help with by helping to show people from the contributing side how they can help the projects on which they're their own projects, their companies on which they rely. And then hopefully maybe we can start working on the other side. You project maintainer, you core contributors, how can we help you get more assistance? So you don't have to be working nights and weekends and missing your kids' baseball games and things like that. Yeah, it's... Uh... Like you said, there's there's only so much that you can that you can just throw throw money at because there's still a, a finite amount of effort and burnout. Even when you're being paid, is a for real thing. And may, being a maintainer is is often thankless and frustrating. And you know, Jess Frizzell talks about like you know she's the one who when something gets merged wrong is on the front page of Hacker News for breaking Docker. You know, it's uh, and speaking mm -hmm. of Jess has a, a great blog post we'll link to again called the Art of Closing. And it's about um, being a maintainer and about learning how to say no. And it's, I've, I've loved that one. But so what are some of the things when, if, if someone is, because I think, think it's uh, people get very excited about starting projects. And then when it, when it becomes this inertia or not inertia, but just it becomes getting kind of burned out um, or becoming overwhelmed when a project gets big and very dependent and, you know, the, people in general are fairly thankless. So what are, what are some of the things, I guess maybe we could start with for maybe some, some advice or some thought, and I don't want you to give away everything that's in your book because we want all our listeners to go buy it, but maybe some, some tips or, or tricks or not, not tricks, but some, some insights or thoughts um, starting with maintainers about some things to think about, to be able to share this, to be able to make it easier for people to contribute. For fuck's sake, dock your shit. <laughs> Seriously, that is the biggest problem is that um, people, so I have this, this talk I do, so, uh, which is all about drive-through contributors. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of open source projects kind of turn up their nose at drive-through contributors. And what drive-through contributors are, are people who show up, they give you one contribution and they never come back again. Um, and my 
talk thesis is that these people are actually good. And if you use that as a metric, and if you can maximize those and get more of those, then your project is actually doing well. The reason behind that is if people are able to show up, drop one patch, get it merged, and then get the fuck out, you have done something really well that is going to make it a lot easier for people to show up later and to stay longer. And one of the problems that I found in my research is with drive-through contributors, they would show up and it would just be so hard. You would be expected to read the code rather than find documentation. There were no install docs. There were no user docs. There were, you know, no, how do you set up a uh, developer environment? None of this is documented in a lot of projects. And I understand writing is hard. Honey, I just wrote a fucking book. Writing is hard. (laughs) But, um, But it also is the best force multiplier. Because it means you have to, you get to stop answering all those questions that you get over and over again. If you just write shit down and make it easier for people to self-serve. Just take a day, take a weekend, and just do nothing but documentation. And leave all of those other bugs aside. Just do documentation. Even shitty documentation is probably better than no documentation at all. And you're more likely to get contributors if you document how to do it. And I think even, like you said, even even shitty docs, you're more likely to get contribution to those docs than no docs, right? Exactly. I'm a big believer in the concept that a blank piece of paper is very intimidating, right? So if I was going to go and take on a project, look at a, a project that I love and say, well, I'm going to, it has no docs. I don't even know where to start, but versus, you know, you kind of like at least half-assed your way through it. and like, oh, well, I can edit that. I can add yes. to it. I can you know, find defects in the doc. Um, so I think, cause I always know that's, that's one of the things that, you know, people say how you can help contribute if maybe you don't necessarily have a patch to contribute or whatnot, but um, you know, with documentation or writing tests, uh, things like that. Again, that's. Uh, uh, yes, but <laughs> I mean, we, we all say that. And I, I, I am a very strong believer in the power of documentation and, and unit tests and particularly integration tests, which is something we neglect a lot. Um, I'm a strong believer in this, but in order to write documentation, you have to understand the project. In order to write tests, you have to understand the code. And so we get a lot of these recommendations from people saying, oh, if you want to contribute to free and open source software, just write docs. No, don't write docs Mm -hmm. unless you know the project then yes, you can write some documentation and you can, as you made a great point that I don't think is made often enough, you can fix the docs. You don't have to write them from scratch. So as a maintainer, just getting people started is typically all you need because they're really eager and they want to do the right thing, but they can't if they're starting from zero. So if you start them from even one or two, they're more likely to be successful and help your project. Yeah. I, uh, going through this a little bit, it's, it's not, it's not open, but as I'm took on a project here at work, um, that someone who has left has had, had kind of built and now I'm going through it. And again, it's none of it's documented. The problem is when you're taking something on, that's not documented. What you don't have is you don't know what's not important anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. When you're trying to reverse engineer some, cause we don't always clean up after ourselves in our projects, right. You know, we keep methods around, we keep stuff around that we're not using, and you can spend an awful lot of time trying to figure out what something does that actually isn't used at all. 
So yeah, you, you might think your code is obvious, but I guarantee if you yourself look at that code in six months, it's going not going to be obvious at all. So document it even if you're not going to open it. Uh, you know, add comments, add docs, you know, markdown or ASCII docker. I don't care. It re- reminds me of uh, one of my friends said that I'm the only person he knows who argues with themselves and GitHub issues on my own projects. And I say, well, it's because oh I might have to go look at it again six months. Like I start something, I want to keep track of it. But yeah, it's a whole, you know, I've got GitHub issues that are a whole thread of just me. <laughs> but it's different sure. instances. Thank you. <laughs> so my first job in technology was at a uh, library automation software. Um, company mm-hmm. and I was there for six years and um, I, I'm very pro library and library positive. I think libraries are amazing and they do astonishing shit with technology that just would blow your mind sometimes. But um, one of the most valuable things that job instilled into me was how to use an issue tracker. You write everything, every single thing, every command, every output, everything. And it's not, because you're being micromanaged it's because that issue is going to go to somebody else and they need to see what's happened and what, why and how. So I treat my issue tracker like a, uh, like a scientist's lab book. And I'm constantly talking to myself and saying, okay, I'm going to try this because of this reason. Oh shit, that didn't work. Okay. Here's what I got. Now I'm going to try this because I think that's, this shows me that's going wrong and just constantly having this dialogue so when I hand this off to someone else, they're like, oh, right. I see where she's going. She's totally off base, but I see where she's going with that. But you can't do that if you don't even document in your issues. It takes a lot of time, but I've never once regretted doing it. And I have it so many times regretted not. So thank you. I'm so glad to hear you do that too. Yeah. I think it's also a chance to, as a maintainer or, you know, to lead by example as well, right? Just like, I, I try to, with my own projects, even though, yeah, sometimes I'll YOLO right into master, but I try to, I still do PRs for myself. And even if I'm the one that approves it or whatnot, because it's, it's giving an example and showing this is the workflow. This is how it works. Right. So and, other people, uh, when they want to look and see, can follow along. Absolutely. And it also makes you more comfortable when you are working in a collaborative environment because you already know the workflow right? You're going yeah. to default to a positive workflow rather than the one that you use on your own projects. And it's not different in the same thing. And when you have the collaborators coming in, you're not treating them any differently than yourself. You know, one of the challenge we talked about, you know, kind of talked about the sustainability problem. And I know, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of enterprises, it's hard to sort of for them to contribute back. And I've, I've had that, that challenge with uh, customers of mine, you know, when I, when I was at Chef and, you know, that was a big thing, you know, we were doing a lot of open source stuff and we wanted, you know, customers to be able to, to send stuff back. And they're, you know, usually they like to throw the, you know, usually the lawyers get in the way. Um, what are some of the things you've seen with how that's maybe been changing? Um, some of the, are, are there, is there positive things we, we can see that maybe, uh, you know, are, are things getting better? The answer to almost everything is going to be, it depends. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's something that is constantly evolving. I think that, uh, so lawyers are understandably and justifiably so very, uh, particularly 
IP lawyers, so intellectual property lawyers, are going to be very um, conservative and risk averse. And that's because any sort of IP related stuff is going to get you in a world of hurt and it's going to cost you a ridiculous amount of money. I do talk about a lot of IP stuff in the book and constantly say, don't fuck with IP law. I don't use the word fuck because the editors don't like it, but that's really what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so there are some complications with that. And what we, what I am starting to see are some companies trying to kind of grease the rails of contributions. Um, it's, it's pretty rare that you find a company that is able to do this. Some companies are modifying their employment agreements. So GitHub did it and GitLab did it. And I believe there are others that I don't have off the top of my head, but they modified their employment agreements to specifically say on any device owned by any person on any time, if you are making modifications and want to make a contribution to a free and open source project, it's okay. Mm-hmm. But a lot of employment agreements don't allow you to do that because of IP restrictions. Um, So some companies are trying to modify their employment uh, agreements for that. It's pretty rare. What you see more often, but is still also rare, is this um, checklist of, of things for to make it easier for people to contribute. You don't have to ask permission if X, Y, Z, P, D, Q. If you can put a check mark in each one of these boxes, go ahead and contribute. It's okay. Um, But that list varies from company to company because each company has a different risk profile. So if somebody's giving you this like, I know, cookie cutter checklist, use this for your company because it's what works for us. That's a load of hooey. Um, and your company and your lawyers are probably going to get really ticked off if you try using that within your, your department. So um, don't do that. That's why people like, like me exist. So we can come in and make sure that you can set up those guardrails to make it easy for people to contribute without having the legal and business risk. What are um, some of the other things to, to keep in mind when we think about open source um, from a whether either from a contributor or maintainer or business perspective, some of the things that people tend to not think about. Uh, the things that we so we we think of contributing to free and open source software as code, and I know we've already discussed docs and those aren't code, but <laughs> um, but you do commit them to the version control, so really they're they're <laughs> essentially code, right? It goes through the same process, and that's not the case. You don't have to be a programmer in order to contribute. And uh, we in free and open source software have kind of shot ourselves in the foot with this over the past 30, 40 years um, because we have become highly programmer-centric. And because of that, we do develop a lot of things that have crappy usability. And because of that, we're never going to have the year of the Linux on the desktop. I don't care how many people say it. Because we, we are developing things that require a lot more technical knowledge than they necessarily should. So if you are a designer, if you are a usability expert, if you're an accessibility expert, holy shit, accessibility experts, get in there because we need your help. You know, if you're a marketer, a lot of the reason why a lot of these projects can't get 
more contributors is that nobody knows about them. So if you're a marketer, you can find really good ways for them to get their message out. We need help like that. A lot of organizations might receive funding and need help. How do I deal with the funding? So if you do finance, great. Find a free and open source software project that needs your help. Find a free and open source software uh, organization or nonprofit that needs your help, like uh, Conservancy or uh, Software Freedom Conservancy or Software for the Public Interest. Uh, There's lots of organizations out there that need help that are not just code. So software is is more than about the code. Software is about all of the people that have to come together to make it happen. That's yeah, a lot a lot of way. That's really insightful to think about all the different different uh, skills that people have to be able to leverage for these things that are important and that are like you said are not the default place that we think. I think even I've been aware of just some conversations I've had with uh, with folks around the infrastructure of open source. You Absolutely. know, when you look at things like. Crates.io for Rust, you know, I mean, they run on stuff. Someone's got to do ops of that. And I, you know, did a, an AMA with Ashley Williams, who kind of runs that infrastructure for crates. And that was the thing. She's like, how do we do on-call? How do you do on-call for critical infrastructure with a bunch of volunteers? <laughs> you know, um, I want to kind of be like, I, I talk to a lot of a lot of companies where people are like, I don't want to be on-call. They don't pay me enough. I'm like, I want the people that are on-call where they don't get paid at all. Exactly. Well, so when I was at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, my team was um, entirely dedicated to upstream open source development and anything they could do to make the projects on which HPE relied better, anything they could do for that was their mandate. And a large number of them were dedicated to the infrastructure of OpenStack. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've looked at OpenStack and its contributions process, but holy shit, there is a lot going on in the back there to make those contributions possible. And the team was dedicated, a lot of them were dedicated to that. And they were, they had a lot of the same problems, right? I mean, what do you do with on call when you're a globally distributed project that's one of the largest largest open source projects in the world? How do you make sure that it stays up and people are able to contribute wherever they happen to be? Um, a quick note on not uh, on the multiple ways to contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, my my book is not focused on programmers. There are maybe one or two examples that use code, but it's focused on the on all of the ways to contribute. So uh, if you're not a coder, this book is still good for you because it work, walks you through all of the steps regardless, because a lot, the vast majority of contributing to free and open source software doesn't matter what you're contributing, whether it uses version control or code or whether it doesn't. You still have to know all of these social mores. You have to know how to use um, chat systems and mailing lists and just all of that stuff. You have to know those no matter your type of contribution. So don't feel you have to be a coder to contribute. Don't feel you have to be a coder to read my book. So, hey, go buy my book. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Everybody buy the book for sure. A lot of, uh, lot of good insight there. I'm looking forward to I'm picking it up myself, um, especially thinking about different ways to be part of, of the industry and help things be better. And that's for my own personal experience too. It's like, I'm, you know, I'm not by far my 
I was going to say, I'm not the world's best software engineer. I'm not even the world's worst software engineer. There's people that are, you know, I'm worse than the worst software engineer. But <laughs> I think about things you do with, you know, like with podcasting and with, with events and organizing things like that to help drive the ability for uh, people to be able to share this information and do things like that. There's all sorts of ways to, to apply your skills, I think, um, to help make everything everything better. Uh, I want to take a quick tack because something that we, uh, we'll, we'll keep talking about open source, but um, the uh, fans of the show know we, we did an episode recently with J. Paul Reed and Mary Thangle, and we talked about safety and stuff. And so last week, Vicky and I were both at Redeploy, um, which was probably from a content perspective, I'm not saying that because I spoke there because I was probably the worst speaker. Uh, one of the most interesting and learning experiences I've had in an event in years. Um, it was really, really well done. <laughs> they, uh, I, I was really impressed. I only full disclosure was only there for one day because I had client stuff the next day. Um, but it was so well done. It was content packed and it's not just that it was content packed, but it was all relevant and it was all really well delivered and somehow seemed to connect each piece, each talk seemed to connect very nicely to the next one. They all hung together well as a program that gave you, Oh God, so much to think about afterward. It was great. So we're hopefully we'll we'll uh, we'll definitely tweet out when we find out that they've got the videos and, and, and stuff up there. But hopefully they will be doing this again and, and, and don't don't miss it for sure. The um when and, and one of the things too that I that I found out through some conversations while we're there is that you uh help people um kind of develop uh their abstracts or proposals or ideas around that. When, what's some of the things that maybe and how that could play, uh, go into um, keeping a little bit on our topic about that you've learned or you've been able to help people with about being able to communicate the different, maybe different kinds of ideas, uh, different viewpoints um, than sort of the normal tech talk about here's, you know, 10 cool tricks with NPM. So I... Um... I, by the end of this year, I will have reviewed over a thousand um, conference proposals in this year alone. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not counting all of the other years. Uh, and I also do trainings on how to get, if your team, your company wants to get more people organically placed through CFPs, so they have more speakers at conferences, I do trainings on how to do that. So I have a lot of feels on this subject. Um and a lot of experience looking at proposals and knowing what works and what doesn't. Um, if you're really excited about the latest hot thing that's out, if you're excited about Kubernetes or, you know, a couple of years ago it was Docker or uh, uh, artificial technology and machine learning or security and IoT and privacy and all of these things that are really hot right now, it's hot for a reason and you can be guaranteed that lots of people are going to be proposing talks about it, just like you. So what's going to make (laughs) your talk stand out from everyone else's? What's going to make yours look like something else? Well, first go to YouTube and make sure that someone hasn't already done a talk almost exactly like the one you want to propose, because I'm pretty sure you're going to find lots of them. So find a unique angle on, say, uh, personal security and IoT. Don't just go for the same thing that everyone else has done and, you know, regurgitate uh, Matthew Garrett's excellent blog posts on the subject. Hmm. Um, So don't do that. But 
when you do finally come across an idea that is a unique perspective on the latest hot shit, please, for love of God, tell me audience takeaways. Don't just say, hey, this is really cool and I'm going to talk about it. That's nice. My conference is not the place for story time. That's where you go to the bar and you talk about things. But my conference is where people are paying money. Okay, my conference actually is Seagull, Seattle, GNU Linux, and people don't pay money because we're free as in, as in <laughs> beer um, and we're free as in speech. But the other conferences I help, people are paying money. They're, their employers are sending them there to learn shit. And yeah, they might also be having a lot, a great time. Uh, but the bottom line is they have to learn shit. So if you're not telling me what they're going to learn, I'm not going to waste their time with your talk. So if you can't like literally put in your abstract by the end of this talk, the audience will know. And then give me bullet points of like three things that they could do after the talk that they couldn't do before. And if you do that, you will be better than 95% of the talk proposals that I see. So I'm going to, I've got a kind of one follow-up thing and then I'm going to let you uh, go. I'm going to give you, give you, give you a chance to, to rant if there's anything else you want to rant about. Cause I love your rants. So you just said, you know, in a talk proposal, say the three things that you'll be able to do that you weren't able to do before. So what are maybe three things? that after someone reads your book, they'll be able to do that they weren't able to do before. So after they, shit, man, you put me on the spot. (laughs) Excellent. Very good question. And I think I need to prepare a better answer for this. So I'm just going (laughs) to ramble on for a moment and try and go. Well, I'll fix that. We'll fix that in post. So so it'll look like you you nailed it right away. No, no, no. I I, I need people to know that we all just make shit up as we go. (laughs) Um, I don't care. I've been in this industry for over 20 years now. And honey, we we all do this. It's fake it to make it. And you're always faking it. So, um, so three things people will be able to do with my book afterward, after they read it, that they couldn't before. Um, number one, they will be able to find a project that is a good fit for them, not just any project. Pro tip, it's not going to be contributing to Linux. Um, number two, uh, everyone can do a PR. Who cares about that? Uh, number two, you will be able to accept feedback in an empathetic way. Number three, you will be able to give feedback in an empathetic way Uh, because communication and people is really the key to all of free and open source software. And a lot of the book is dedicated to how to communicate in a way that the free and open source software people will expect. So you're able to be more successful with your contribution and feedback is very important in that. Great. Those are I'm looking forward to that because I could sure use some help with those things. So uh, as we kind of come to wrap up, is there, are there any, any things that we didn't cover that you want to make sure that we share uh, with our listeners on, on this topic? Oh, on the topic I you have of the book, a lot of um, I, I, Oh, honey, I have opinions with a capital O. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, specifically, it's not like I came uh, here with a soapbox beyond, hey, I've got a book and it's really cool. Could you buy it, please? Yeah. Well, because it is really cool and I would like you to buy it, please. Um, uh, and you can do so today. And if you do so today, then when it comes out in October, you get a nice little email saying, hey, now that you've bought it in ebook, do you want to have this small fee and get the hard copy? So if you want to do that. that mm-hmm. But um, no, I just really think that uh, I mean, we as individuals, the, the, some of the questions I've been fielding for years 
are always, how do I contribute to open source software and how do I find a project to contribute to? Um, and we in open source, we have let people down that we are 20 years on for open source and nearly 40 years on for free software. People are still asking this fucking question. That's our problem. We as a community, we as a group, we have let people down by not making it easier for them, by not making it obvious how you find these things. We are just so head down in our little projects dealing with our stuff that we haven't picked our heads up and looked at the big picture. And the big picture is we're drowning. We, if you look at the GitHub State of the Octaverse study that comes out every single year, every single year, there are literally millions of new public repositories on GitHub alone. That's just GitHub. That's not counting for GitLab or Bitbucket or all of the independently hosted open source project repositories, right? That's millions. And if you look at those millions, yeah, they're just public. Maybe only half of them are are open source, uh, meaning they're using an OSI approved license. Okay, maybe half of those are not forks. You're still looking at several million new open source projects every single year on GitHub alone. Jesus Christ, people, this is not sustainable. We have to make it easier for people to contribute. Otherwise, we're just going to crash under the weight of our own success. So we can do better. And if you're a contributor, read my book and contribute, please. We need your help. If you're a maintainer, read my book and learn how to make it easier for people to contribute because we're just all going to burn out. It's, it's not a good scene. I see coming in a few years. Well, I guess I did have a rant. I'm sorry. You did. I enjoyed that. That was fantastic. Great. Um, so uh, as, as usual, um, if you are looking for where well, there's a DevOps days has a bunch of open CFPs. So if you go to devopsdays.org slash speaking, you can check those out. And there's still a bunch left out for the rest of the year and, and always coming up. Uh, if you go to arrestdevops.com slash FOSS, We'll have this episode show notes. Uh, you can sign up for a newsletter, uh, all the, you know, see all the rest of DevOps stuff you could ever want. And if you go to a rest slash iTunes, you leave us a review in the iTunes store that helps other people find the podcast, apparently. So, uh, Vicki, thank you very much for joining me today. This was a great conversation. This was great. I love chatting with you, Maddie, though. So, yeah. you know, you make it easy. Super fun. Super fun. So uh, I'm Maddie uh, at Matt Stratton on Twitter. This is the rest of DevOps. And remember, there is always DevOps in the banana stand.